You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what he has to say in his word. Well, good morning. Please turn with me to Malachi, the book of Malachi, chapter 1. And if you're unsure of where that is, it's the very end of the Old Testament. Cody is bringing us through the book of Matthew, so this is just a few pages behind that. So Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you, who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So back in October, I had the opportunity to preach on the first few verses in the book of Malachi, verses 1 through 5, and afterwards, Cody asked me to continue preaching through Malachi, and he he even said we should come up with a sermon series title. Um, which I've never done before. Uh, So the title that we decided on was Restoring Reverent Worship. And the reason I settled on this title of Restoring Reverent Worship is because there's a strong emphasis in the prophecy of Malachi on Israel's worship and, quite frankly, how far it fell short of God's standards. Instead of adhering to the stipulations of the law, Israel chose to worship God on their own terms. And in In my sermon on Malachi 1, 1 through 5, I described how Israel had recently been restored to their land after a period of exile and allowed to rebuild the temple of the Lord. As the years went on, however, uh, they began to doubt the Lord and all he had done for them. We saw this in the way 
they question God's love for them in verse 2. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Israel's practices in the temple reflected their doubt of God's love for them. Their doubt is the root of the issue in this prophecy, and we see the fruit of it in the types of offerings that the priests were bringing to the Lord. And so in our text this morning, Malachi speaks specifically to the priestly order and the kind of precedent that they were uh, setting for worship being done in the temple. Malachi is rightly rebuking them for their violation of God's clear instructions. His accusation towards the priests challenged the very heart of everything that they were doing as worship unto God. But the time for reform had already come in God, and now all, all Malachi had were harsh words of rebuke to address the state of the priesthood and the people of Israel's careless worship. And yet, even in the midst of God's accusation leveled towards them, there's an arm extended in grace to help them understand what a pure offering consists of. Even as Malachi calls out the failure of the people to worship God as they were commanded, there's a reminder here about what constitutes pure worship. And so the first aspect this morning uh, that we see in, in our text uh, of pure worship is an attitude of reverence. God declares in verse 1, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my fear? Or sorry, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Right away, the word of the Lord is given in relational terms. God is not abstract or, or disconnected in, the, in his judgment of Israel's behavior. He evaluates them on the basis of his covenant relationship with them. First, by describing it as a relationship between a father and a son, and then between a master and a servant. So let us first consider God's relationship with Israel as their father. The book of Malachi is not the first time that God relates to his people as a father. We can go all the way back to Exodus 4 when it is said to Moses in verse 22, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So this claim that God makes for his divine fatherhood of the nation of Israel does not come out of left field. Uh, it, it is a reality that Israel is well aware of, which is most likely why the question is phrased this way. If then I am a father... Where is my honor? God is rightly demanding the honor that is due him as Israel's father. And as those who live in a culture where honor is not valued, we may wonder why God would demand it. I mean, for, for a lot of people, a demand for honor comes across as chauvinistic and, and kind of condescending. Who are you to request let alone demand honor from me. Our default is that respect is earned, not given. I mean, all, all you have to do to see how, how much the people in your city value honor is just walk through the hallway of your local public high school. And since I work here at Central Cast, I do that quite a bit. Um, and I've heard some shocking things come out of kids' mouths. Uh, the disrespect that exists between students and their peers and even students and their teachers uh, is nothing short of a tragedy. But it would be naive to say that that level of disrespect stops when the kids get home. More likely, that's where it starts. 
If a child can't learn to show respect to his parents, how can he be expected to show the same to his peers and teachers? And in a world that has forsaken the fifth commandment, which is to honor your father and mother, we can hardly act surprised when dishonor becomes the norm. But the book of Proverbs tells us that it's a tragedy for a son to dishonor his father. Proverbs 17, 21 says, He who sires a fool gets himself sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. And then in verse 25, a, fool, a foolish son is a grief to his father. And then in chapter 19, verse 13, a foolish son is ruin to his father. A son is acting the fool when he brings dishonor to his father. And what is the father's lot in all of this? Sorrow, grief, ruin. And if dishonor given by a son to his earthly father is tragic, how much more so is the dishonor given to God from Israel? But we're told that Israel not only fails to give God the honor he deserves, they also fail to give him fear. And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name? Now, it's important for us to understand what the Lord means when he uses the word fear here. A son may indeed begin to honor his father if his father beats him relentlessly for every minor violation. However, the fear that the son feels towards his father when, when he enters the room is not a fear that's grounded in respect. The son is merely afraid of his father and, and the beating he may receive at any given moment. But this is not what the fear of the Lord is. What exactly is God demanding from his people then? Uh, look with me uh, at Jeremiah chapter 33. Here we'll read of God's promise of peace to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. Starting in verse 7, uh, again, that's chapter 33. He says, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them of all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth, who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. So this is the type of fear that God proclaims is rightfully due his name. It's a, a trembling fear, a fear that recognizes all of the good that God has done, all of the mighty works that he's accomplished on behalf of his people. So as Israel's master, we understand that God is not demanding their fear for no reason. He is deserving of it. As the one who has protected Israel, provided for Israel, preserved Israel's status as his chosen people from among the nations, he is deserving of their reverential fear. And yet, the reality of the situation is that the people have failed to give God honor and fear to his name. The priests have despised his name, but they plead not guilty. We read, but you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? 
And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Just as God's demands for honor and fear from Israel are totally justified, so are his his accusations towards them of despising his name and polluting his altar. He gives hard evidence. Israel was supposed to bring animals without defects. According to the law in Leviticus chapter 22, verse 20, it says, You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. Yet here they are accused of bringing animals that are lame and sick. He also accuses them of offering blind animals, which is spoken against in Leviticus chapter 22 again, uh, this time in verse 22. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. So God gives proof to support his accusation of Israel's sin. But it's so crucial for us to understand that Israel's actions in bringing defiled sacrificial offerings are the fruit of a much deeper issue. This is a matter of of disposition, of attitude. And we've seen that at heart, Israel has no respect for God's commandments. His demands for honor and fear are met with complacency from the people. They simply don't care about obeying God and worshiping him rightly. They offer defected animals because it's easier and it doesn't affect their livelihood as hard. They, they were going to have to get rid of them at some point anyway. Why waste a healthy male goat when you could just give God the sick one? And what's more, Israel's concern was greater for what they presented to the governor than what it was for what they presented to God. We read, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Israel would not dare to bring such weak, useless animals to the governing authorities. And yet, due to their apathy toward the Lord of hosts, they saw fit to bring such sacrifices into his holy temple. And if they could not hope to gain the favor of the governor with such offerings, how could they hope to gain the favor of the Lord? We read, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. We must read verse 9 with a sense of irony. Malachi is not suggesting here the type of superstitious pagan belief that Israel could somehow manipulate God with their offerings. He's being ironic in order to get his point across. How could they hope that their impure, defiled offerings would in any way be pleasing to God? They're detestable to him. He's offended by them. And he is not in the business of of blessing those who bring him such wicked offerings. His response in verse 10 is much more fitting to their crime. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God prefers a boarded-up temple to one that engages in worthless worship. He would rather the people be silent than to offer up to God worship that's defiled. 
And could it be that the standard to which God held Israel in their worship is the same standard that he holds us to today? Of course, we're not expected to bring animal sacrifices in our worship. But the author of Hebrews does tell us to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. How can we ensure that our own worship, our sacrifice of praise, is pleasing to God rather than detestable? Well, I believe that part of the answer to that question is to reject the complacent attitude that was so common among the people of Israel. We must aspire to be fearful in our worship, to bring honor to God when we gather in his name. Our attitudes should not be apathetic, but rather deeply and profoundly reverent towards the God of our salvation. But we must understand that this reverence can't be manufactured. It's not something that we can command ourselves to do apart from the grace given to us by the Spirit of God. True reverence only comes as a result of being called to the belief that God is who he says he is. Part of Israel's problem was they did not really believe. They acted as though God did not exist or that he was somehow less than who he said he was. I mean, how could you believe that a holy, omnipotent, almighty God exists and is actively reigning over his people and creation and still continue to offer up to him such careless worship? For those of us who have been given the gift of saving faith, how, how could we stand to come here on a Sunday morning, go through the motions, perform the liturgy, and never once be awed by the greatness of God, who by grace has redeemed our souls from death? It's impossible. If you know the one true God and your life has been utterly transformed by that knowledge, it's impossible for you to not approach the Lord in reverence. But if you have grown complacent in your appeal to the truth of who God is according to his word, if you simply don't care what the Bible tells you of this great, magnificent God, your worship will begin to far more reflect the idolatry of self. And this is the reality in many churches throughout the world today. Rather than focusing on honoring God, they focus on creating an experience for themselves and for those who walk through the church doors on Sunday morning. You know what I'm talking about. The, you walk in and the lights are dim. The music is droning. The pastor gets up and brings a word, totally unprepared, so you know he's the real deal. And by the end of it, you're certain that you've indeed met with God. In fact, you're so wrapped up in this feeling of intimacy with God that you overlook the fact that the, the pastor never opened up his Bible. You don't realize that the song the worship leader just sang could have been sung to his girlfriend, and it would have made just as much sense as singing it to the God of the universe. And in such an environment, emotions run high. People are singing and praying with such passion. How could you possibly second-guess that God is moving in their midst. But when the experience becomes an end in and of itself in your worship, God is not revered. Those who worship in such a manner may have religious zeal, 
But as Paul says in Romans 10, verse 2, that zeal is not according to knowledge. Could it be that if churches who participate in such worship were held to account, they would be told the same thing that God tells the priests in verse 10? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. God is not pleased by self-glorifying, emotion-seeking worship. But that's not to say that emotions should be absent in our worship. In fact, in order for our worship to be reverent, emotions play a huge part in that. We read in Colossians 3 verse 16, that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We must allow the word of Christ to dwell in us richly with thanksgiving in our hearts. So we we should employ our emotions to honor God, not let them run out of control for the sake of an experience. And my hope for us is that we would be a church that seeks to be reverent in our worship, that honor and fear would be the driving force of our worship, not, not because it's convenient for us, but because it allows us to give God what he rightfully deserves. As Hebrews 12, 28 says, we must offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And this kind of worship, worship that is pure, stands to be not just accepted, but delighted in by God. Worship that holds a high regard for the character and nature of God is is a pleasing aroma to him. So let us fight against the sinful complacency that so characterized the worship of the people of Israel. And let our very attitudes demonstrate the fear of the Lord and show our worship to be pure before an almighty God. But our attitudes are not the only thing we must pay attention to if our worship is to be pure. It certainly is not the only thing that is addressed in this prophecy towards Israel. We must also inspect our actions and be sure that they align with what God commands us. So with the first quality of pure worship being an attitude of reference, the second quality of pure worship is steadfast obedience. And to be clear, you cannot have one without the other. I spoke first about the need for a reverential attitude in our worship, because without an attitude that fears the Lord and seeks to give him the honor he deserves, our obedience will be like a tree without roots or a house without a foundation. It might look good from the outside, but the second there's a gust of wind, the whole thing falls over. Our actions must be established in an internal desire to please the Lord and give glory to his name. The acts of obedience themselves mean nothing to God if they're not done with true humility, without a heart of genuine repentance, we'll find ourselves falling so quickly into carelessness in our worship. We've already seen that the result of Israel's apathy is disobedience. The fruit of their careless attitude is a failure to perform the correct actions 
in worship that are prescribed to them by God's law. But just to make sure the point gets across, the accusation towards Israel in verse 6 is reiterated in verses 12 and 13. We'll read uh, that, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord of hosts. You have to wonder at this point, how could things have possibly gotten so bad? How could Israel have fallen into such drastic disobedience? And for the answer to that, you just have to look at the priests themselves. They're not performing the duties that, as they should, making sure that the, the offerings being brought to the temple are suitable according to the law. Rather, they, they snort at the food of the altar. They toss up their hands, they turn their heads, they grumble under their breath about all the other things that are much more worth their time. They're dismissive of the defiled offerings that are brought before God because, frankly, they don't view what they're doing as sacred. It's just ordinary, mundane, boring for them. And how often are we guilty of imitating this behavior? How often do we come before God to worship him and constantly glance at our watches, just waiting for the service to be done so we can go home? I mean, I'm encouraged by our community because we have a people that love to gather. Every week, so many people will stay afterwards and, 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 and just hang out in the activities commons um, and, and, and just to enjoy spending time with one another. There's such a desire for God's word uh, in our congregation that I can get up here and preach for 50 minutes and most of you are unfazed by that. At least I hope so. Um, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that we aren't susceptible to falling into carelessness. In fact, because this is such a strength in our body, I believe that the enemy will work ever so much harder to try and stir up division among us and to destroy the bonds of love and friendship that have been established between us. The devil is predisposed to make us careless, ignorant, and disobedient. But we must strive to maintain our devotion to God and to one another. We must remain steadfastly obedient to God and his command for us to gather with one another to worship him. And in so doing, we'll, we'll stand to be protected from the enemy's attempts to produce in us the kind of careless disobedience that is seen in the priests of Israel. You see, God is just in taking offense at their failure to worship him rightly. He sees their disobedience fueled by their apathy, and he rejects their worship. He goes so far to say, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. So the result of their apathy is disobedience, and the result of their disobedience is that they are cursed. And again, this, this response is not unjust. God justifies himself when he says, for I am a great king, 
and my name will be feared among the nations. And it's here at the end of this passage that God reveals the full weight of the situation. After appealing to Israel as their father and their master, he now appeals to them as their great king. And it's as their king that he declares, my name will be feared among the nations. It is no longer a matter of, of demanding that Israel fear him and show him the, the respect he deserves. No, he's, he moves on to just a mere statement of fact. His name will be feared. The same kind of speech from the Lord is used in the prophecy of Isaiah when he says in chapter 45, verses 22 through 23, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So there is a transcendent reality that supersedes the failures of God's own people, one in which all people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will acknowledge that God is king over his creation. One way or another, every single person to have ever lived will stand before God to be judged. Every knee will bow before the king and recognize his ultimate authority over everything. This is not just a prediction. It is a fixed event in the history of humanity in which not a single soul will fail to be held to account. And where shall we stand on that day? Will our reverence of God have revealed itself through lives devoted to the obedience of his commands? Or will we find ourselves cursed, condemned to an eternity in hell, for rebelling against his authority. God's authority does not cease to exist just because we decide to act like it has. He who reigns as king will be feared. And at the same time that this is a command for God's people, it is also an objective truth that no person can escape even if they choose to disbelieve it. And as we consider this truth, it's very easy to fall into hopelessness and despair, as so many people do. How can we hope to obey God in such a way as to avoid his divine wrath poured out in judgment? In other words, how can we hope to be perfect so that God accepts our worship as pure rather than rejecting it as defiled? And to answer that question, I'll draw your attention back to verse 11. It says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. At first glance, this verse doesn't seem to offer up any new insight into the worship of God's people. The same idea of verse 14 is conveyed here, that God is great, and his name will be feared among the nations. 
But when we look closer, it's evident that what is being referred to here is nothing short of, of revolutionary for the people of Israel. Central to this verse is the statement that in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. And since we belong in a time in history when we can look back to Christ and all that he accomplished for humanity, it's easy for us to take this statement for granted. Israel is being told that in every place, among every people, God will be worshipped. And not just that, but worshipped rightly, with pure offerings. He may have well just dropped a bomb in their midst. Didn't he just get done reminding them in verses 1 through 5 of this chapter that he chose to love them, not Esau? Was not Jerusalem the place that God dwelled in his holy temple? Isn't that the place where God's people were to gather to worship him? How could it be said that he would be worshipped anywhere else but there? Israel would have been dumbfounded at this suggestion. The assumption is that some way, somehow, every nation would experience a conversion to the sacred, lawful worship of the one true God. As one commentator puts it, the wall of partition that divides the worship of God in the temple from the rest of the world is to be removed. But this is not the last time that such a revolutionary concept would be stated in Scripture. In John chapter 4, verses 21 through 23, Jesus says to the woman at the well, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus is pointing to the same reality that is referenced here in Malachi 1, verse 11. There will come a time, which he says is now here, when worship won't be done in Jerusalem. Instead, the Father will call men and women to worship him in spirit and in truth. The place won't matter anymore. The physical temple will no longer be required. But the question remains, how could this come to be? How is it that true worship will no longer be reserved for the temple of God, but expanded to include any and all who gather to worship the Father in spirit and truth? And for us, the answer is clear as day. All we have to do is open Matthew's gospel and turn to his account of Jesus' crucifixion. Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The curtain of the temple was torn in two the, the partition wall that separated the holy place from the most holy was removed, symbolizing the end of the Mosaic Covenant in which worshipers had to offer up animal sacrifices to atone for their sins. Now is ushered in a new covenant in which the blood of Christ covers the sins of all who would repent and believe in him. 
This is the event that is foreshadowed in the prophecy of Malachi. Pure worship can now be offered unto God anywhere in the world because Christ has made a way for sinners to worship God in spirit and in truth. And the priests that so utterly failed at their task have now been replaced by a great high priest. Hebrews 9, 11 through 12 says, But when Christ appeared as a great high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For those who reject this truth, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was sent to earth to offer up himself as an atoning sacrifice for sinners, there is no doubt where you will stand on the final day of judgment. By rejecting the secure eternal redemption that is only found in Christ, you will kneel before God only to be condemned to an eternity apart from him. And if you're here this morning and you're uncertain about where you stand and what you believe, it's not too late. Repent of your sins. Come to the mercy seat of Christ who is sure to forgive you. No sin is too great for his sacrifice to absolve. And for those who are in Christ, who believe in him and confess that he is Lord over death, his blood now covers you. When you stand before the great king to be judged, the righteousness of Christ will be your righteousness. The perfect obedience of the Savior will be counted to you, and you will be accepted into God's eternal kingdom, having been washed and purified by the blood of Jesus. And on that day, the name of the Lord will be feared by his people. All honor and glory and praise and devotion will be given to him. For he has won the great victory through Christ for sinners. But in the meantime, we must be diligent in looking to God's word so that the hope we have in Christ can be deeply instilled in us. We must rely ever more deeply upon the work of the Holy Spirit to guide us in, further into obedience to his word. Because even though the righteousness of Christ has been imparted to us by grace, we are not to abandon our duty to urgently obey God's commands. In the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, 1 through 4, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The evidence of our being raised from the dead with Christ by the power of God is that we are now walking in newness of life. So our worship will be marked by an abiding attitude of reverence towards God and all that he has done and a steadfast obedience to his commands given to us in his word. We are called to worship God in reverence and in awe, in spirit and in truth. Only then will our worship be pure and pleasing unto God. So may we be a people from whom God is delighted to receive praise and adoration 
And may our hearts be ever drawn to Christ, our Savior, the perfect high priest who is faithful to forgive us of our sins. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.